Section 11 of The Centurions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Centurions by Biagi. Chapter 10, Part 2. Sachs twirled his cap, but our attention was attracted to the strange vibration of the ship accompanied by an odd whirring sound and two huge black objects at the sides slowly unfurled and gently fluttered in the breeze. They looked like the wings of a monster bat, and the boat began moving, moving upwards. Heaven knows what we thought when boarding the vessel, but it never occurred to us we would sail the air. "'It's a flying machine,' gasped Sachs. "'An airship,' echoed Sheldon, and we continued to float upward, the vessel rolling and rocking as in a rough sea, causing Sheldon to exclaim, The damn thing'll roll clean over and damp us all out. And then, to impress the gentleman surrounding us that his remark had been one of learning, he began conversing earnestly in his most polished classroom manner with a tall gentleman beside him. A fine old individual, with a long grey beard, towed Saunders off, and Zacks became the centre of a group of men, who plied him with questions and were eagerly questioned in turn. A handsome young man took possession of me, he was the governor's son, and introduced himself as Tolna, and I learned we were the guests of the governor and were being conveyed to Latonia in his private yacht. I questioned Tolna as to the safety of travelling by the Zephyr route, and was keen concerning the rolling of the ship, explaining it was my first experience of air navigation. He looked incredulous, and I reminded him his people were six centuries in advance of those of my country. But we are considering the airship, I continued. We are just realizing the air is navigable, and several bright men have invented machines that were received fairly well by the press, but the atmosphere did not take kindly to them. The fatalities incurred ruinous scepticism. Fatality, scepticism, are the parents of progression. Tolna informed me. Without either, the universe would be vacuum. Skepticism is the spur. Fatality, realization. Vessels sailing the clouds have been our mode of travelling for centuries. Continual improvements have made the ships absolutely safe. I do not think the airship can be perfected further unless something altogether new is invented. For speed, comfort, elegance, the airship has no parallel. This rolling and slantic is simply the upward motion, like birds whose wings flutter spasmodically to a certain height, then straight they speed almost without motion. Our ship will soon reach the altitude, the rolling, flapping of sails will cease, and the smoothness, evenness of travel will enrapture you. A feathered pet served as the model for the first invention, which can be seen in the museum at Centaur. It is a remarkably cunning useless contrivance, but is the foundation of this superb floating machine. Do not fail to visit the museum when you reach Centaur. Tolna's explanation undoubtedly was very elevating, but there was considerably more to learn about the airship, and apparently we had reached the desired altitude, for the pitching and rolling ceased, and we flew straight ahead upon an infinite avenue of ether so swiftly as to seem motionless. I was conducted to view the engine which was enclosed in a crystal cage stretching the length down the centre of the ship. 
the machinery was a complicated mass of golden wires, crossed and recrossed with an astonishing assortment of tiny wheels, all revolving around a powerful arm that hammered swiftly up and down, and receiving force from a treacherous-looking cylinder dashing back and forth. I became absorbed in the confusion of wires drawn swiftly over their golden pulleys. The sheen of yellow metal was dazzling. Tolna turned me over to the engineer, who invited me to enter the glass cage with him. The kindly fellow patiently answered all my questions, no, the senseless questions of greenhorns, and explained the whole intricate mass of machinery, which comprised five distinct separate engines, with only one in action, and, fascinated, I watched the one working engine that compelled this huge structure to float upon the air. Then I made thorough examinations, vividly impressing the whole superb complication upon my memory. I was determined to master the mystery of the airship before returning to my own country. Finally, Tolner returned. Some sign passed between him and the engineer, which I caught for all my absorbed contemplation. Evidently, the engineer wished me out of the way, and hurriedly I departed with Tolner, who informed me my friends had made inquiries for me. My three friends were hugely enjoying themselves. Each in their element, the center of a crowd, were lecturing with gusto upon the merits of their respective hobbies. Sachs was exhibiting the interior of his car, and his face glowed with pride at the extraordinary interest the centurions took in the engraving of the lost propylier. Saunders was displaying the mutilated portions of his various astronomical instruments. His one uninjured instrument created a sensation. The centurions had never seen anything like it. Nothing in that line could compete with it in the museum at Centaur, and they warned Saunders his little old telescope would be seized by the government to be exhibited as a rare curio. He would be compensated, of course. Of course, anyone could see Saunders grow. Sheldon was very important, irritatingly so, and had assumed an attitude of condescension little short of cuss-words. He had quite the largest group of listeners, and was explaining with authoritative distinctness the many points of interest upon his map of the world. But I called the attention of all by distributing a few gold and silver coins, and this little generosity begot a tremendously new sensation. For the first time in my life I was the recipient of thanks, the value exceeding by far the gift, and under the unusual experience I became awkward, blushed, and stammered. What a startling barbaric custom! Thanks, thanks, thanks! Prevailing etiquette of our world voted acceptance in any form, but a blasé indifferent manner, the acme of vulgarity, favor conferred in acceptance, the recipient's due, etc. Scientists delved into chaos, feverishly pursuing a wraith-like, fascinating substance they labeled gratitude, but the experts failed to discover the slightest trick of this rare ore of their brains. Universal is the belief in gratitude, but no one, no one has ever witnessed it. Tolna escorted us to the cabin, which was richly furnished. Pale, cloudy material draped the walls, soft damask skins carpeted the floors, there were many couches and roomy seats in odd, fantastic forms, marvellous with intricate carving, massive, weighty, as though hewed from stone, yet lighter than wood. The centurions had mastered the rare art of combining beauty with comfort. I sank into a thickly cushioned seat and sipped the strange, poignant liquor Tolna served in tiny glasses. 
The poignant bouquet swept the cobwebs of fatigue from my system, and boldly I complimented the handsome youth who looked as though he had just stepped from some medieval painting. The centurions were a marvellously enlightened people, but in mode of dress had apparently remained stationary. They adhered, probably from time immemorial, to the picturesque, easy costume of the ancient Romans, but the gorgeous pagan splendor of Rome paled before the barbaric magnificence of Centauri, scintillating in gem-studded fabrics. Sheldon, who was near, whispered excitedly, The wealth of the world must be on this side. These fellows are stiff with richness, six centuries ahead, barbarians. Orientals, I suggested. Nonsense, he retorted, but they do remind me a little of the Chinese. Same costume since the year one. You've tipped Saunders one better. He declares these people are descendants of a lost tribe of Romans or Jews, explaining the wandering Jews discovered themselves again in the Romans, while the meandering Romans were lassoed by the centurions. He bases his extraordinary inference upon the appearance of these people, says their Romans clear through, and grew bilious because I called the centurions barbarians, hinting he'd got his tribes mixed. I wasn't aware there were any Romans missing. Sheldon chuckled at the recollection and supposed the argument would last the whole time they were in this part of the world. Saunders's idea concerning the origin of the Centaurians was certainly diverting, still not impossible. But we, not the Romans, discovered this wonderful new continent, and the superb Centauris are a product of their own magnificent land. This tall, powerful man were godlike in their perfect beauty with their close-cropped curls, strong necks and massive shoulders, but it did go against me to see the great muscular arms heavily braceleted. Tolna, linking his arm in mine, informed me the journey was nearly at an end. We strolled out upon deck, everybody followed, and a quiver of excitement passed through all as a hoarse shout wafted up from the earth. The ship began rolling, and I experienced an uncomfortable sensation as it suddenly slanted down from the wind and through a damp, chilling cloud. Then, what an extraordinary, magnificent sight met the eye! Beneath, visible as in broad day, white, brilliant with lights, lay the remarkable, dazzling city of Latonia. Shining mosques, odd, cone-shaped domes, delicate spiral towers, reared majestically to infinite heights tinging the heavens with flaring, gigantic sprays of brilliancy. Through vivid reflections, the broad avenues of this flashing city were plainly visible, black with a crowding, yelling mob that rent the air with deafening shouts as the gradually drooping ship gently settled upon a high steel trestle. We were hurried down spidery steel steps and through an avenue of guards, but hastily uncovered before the wild cheers of the crowd that pressed forward. There was a rush, the guards gave way, we were seized, hoisted high, and carried to the waiting carriage, where a splendid old party stood smiling a welcome. With one hand he held in check the six restive horses, the other he extended to sacks. The noise, confusion, was so great it was impossible to hear anything said, but we knew this was the governor of Latonia and saluted deeply. The fine old gentleman gave us each a kindly greeting, then was obliged to turn his attention to the prancing, impatient horses, as they suddenly plunged into the crowd, which stampeded but quickly closed in the rear and raced after us, cheering. 
We shouted back, waving our caps, while the delighted Latonians fiercely pelted us with flowers. Once or twice the governor raised his arm in protest, but the four scientists from the other side of the globe commanded the whole attention. The speeding horses soon outdistanced the crowd and suddenly swerved down a wide, peaceful boulevard. Dazed with excitement, we hardly noticed the wonderful city of bizarre architecture except that it blazed in a continual glare. The streets were all of unyielding stone and thronged with people, 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 in the gardens, doorways, windows, even clinging to the housetops, who cheered lustily as we cluttered past and frantically waved gay streamers and peculiar white flags ornamented with a single glaring yellow star. Gallantly we saluted this strange emblem of Centauri. The governor's palace, situated in the heart of the city, was a great, clumsy stone structure of many gables and towers, surrounded by a park of stately oaks. The tolling of countless bells signalled our arrival, the tall gates flew wide, and the horses dashed up a broad gravelled road. People hurried from all parts of the park to see us, as the governor escorted us to the great domed hall, where he bestowed upon us the embrace of welcome, then personally conducted us to our apartments. He placed his palace at our disposal, and gave strict orders concerning our comfort. The moon was ours for the asking, then turned us over to an army of attendants. These people seemed rather timid of us at first, and deferentially sounded our inclinations regarding the bath. As we exhibited a lively interest in the subject, they lost no further time about the matter, but hurried us down vast columned halls and corridors, and finally ushered us to a pavilion gardened with countless strange tropical plants. A deep rippling brook gently caressed the soggy edge of a steep mossy bank, and down this soft incline we recklessly tumbled and rolled, hauling and mauling each other, and simultaneously plunged into the water with a tremendous splash. The water was tepid and stinging. Sachs suggested it was the salt, but Saunders was positive we bathed in fresh water, while Sheldon declared it was lime, and these advanced people wished to do away with us to get possession of the car. It was certainly a villainous plot, but we emerged from the plunge with tingling, glistening skins, and meekly submitted to the severe rubbing down that even a pugilist would balk against. Swathed in fleecy wool, we were hustled through a panel door, down a winding, often heated alley, which led, in some mysterious way, direct to our apartments. They handed us, like toys, these cast-iron people, and quickly assisted us into fresh clothing, the costume of Centauri, which suited us well, though Sheldon whined as he felt naked. Sachs and Saunders bothered continually about the chemicals contained in the bath and quizzed the attendants, who pretended not to understand. Both, however, declared they felt as fresh as daisies and good for all night. No doubt, said Sheldon, freshness is proverbial with daisies, though I've seen many that reeked the other way. But recollect everything on this side is six centuries ahead, even to the water, and the centurions seem pretty rapid. That stiff old chap, the governor, is going to let us in for some tall doings. Sachs flushed angrily as I sniggered approval of Sheldon's flippancy, but was forced to postpone his bristling rebuke as a sedate but very nervous individual entered, bowing profoundly, and announced in scarcely audible tones something about governor and waiting. 
We followed the gentleman of nerves, who seemed greatly distressed because we looked at him. He ushered us to the great dining hall, then escaped with remarkable agility. A feast awaited us, long tables spread with snowy, sheeny cloth, rich tropical fruit heaped high in wide golden salvers, pasty sweets, jellied viands, crowned with the aroma of punch. It was a congenial atmosphere. The rooms were crowded with guests who watched us with delighted expectancy as Stolna advanced to meet us. Not a woman inside, muttered Sheldon. Somebody had a dream like this once and woke up crowing he'd been in hell. Divining Sheldon's grumble, Tolna explained the ladies had retired. He would not detain us long, as he wished us to rest, but at daybreak, according to orders, we were to be conveyed to Centaur and presented to the Centauri. Introductions followed. We were separated in the gathering about the tables. Sheldon joined the representatives of the National Geographical Geological Societies. Saunders bossed things among the astronomers, and Sachs, was the centre of an odd-looking crowd and group. I was told off to the sports of Latonia. There was no doubt about it, either. They were sports. The wine passed freely, ye gods, wine that required years to season the system. I drank sparingly, indulging in luscious fruit, yet did I become light-headed and lost prudence. I was the gayest of the swift band and boisterously outsung them all. How they did laugh! and their jokes, ouch, leveled at me, each ardently drunk to the beauties of Centauri, then all declared some angel waited my return to the other side. Their mirth grew wild, noisy, as my face flushed. The blood rushed to my brain. Wine roused desire. I sprang up, overturning the chair in my eagerness, and trilling my goblet high, shouted, I drink to the glorious eyes of my innamorata, Alpha Centauri. The effect was startling and enough to sober any man. A pall of silence fell upon the guests deeper than the polar stillness, and, in profound respect, all rose stiff, erect as soldiers, murmuring in hushed reverential tones the name Alpha Centauri. I was astonished, yet positive of some mistake. These men could not possibly know of the myth that had lured me to this land, Gallantly complimenting their fair country, I, at the same time, had been chivalrous to the hidden passion. There was some mistake, and I laughed at their solemnity, again raising my goblet. To the beauty of my enchantress, Alpha Centauri, I sang out, but in lower, gentler tones. What ailed them? All bowed respectfully, but not one touched his glass. Then the governor, who was at the far end of the table, raised his glass level with his eyes and slowly turned it in a circle. Gentlemen, he spoke in tones almost devout, with a fiery young stranger, I drink to the most wise, divine Alpha Centauri. At once all goblets were raised and drained. Then in silence the gentlemen reseated themselves. Merriment was stifled. I alone remained standing, sobered, but when was I ever wise? I drank to a myth, I cried, a vision of my brain that tortured and lured me beyond the pole. May I inquire whom you gentlemen honour? Again the governor rose and replied, We drank to Alpha Centauri, the future ruler of the world, the most wonderful woman in the universe, resolute, brilliant, mysterious as the star from whence she came, Alpha Centauri. My goblet fell with a thud. I tried to recover it and caught the table to steady myself. At once all was confusion, 
a sea of blurred faces surrounded me. Give him water, he's had enough wine, rang the familiar tones of Zach's. Immediately the weakness left me, and Sheldon's hoarse whisper forced me to smile. The myth realized, if she only looks as she appeared, but she won't, old boy, she won't. It's some old jade with a hair lip. Beautiful women were created to be adored, never to rule. He chuckled audibly as I pushed him aside. Tolna offered me wine, but Sachs compelled me to drink a whole goblet of water, then in a way all his own, which no one could take offence at. He intimated the day had been long, fatiguing, and suggested the merrymakers continue without the presence of the four strangers. Tolna regretted the others crowded about us, but finally, with many salutes, we were escorted from the hall. When we were alone, Sachs advised and warned me, and Saunders shook his head. To think it should come true, he muttered. Yes, said Sachs, your vision is mortal. You will realize what is denied to most. All have ideals. Those are rare that are realized. Don't congratulate him yet, boys, chimed in Sheldon. Wait till the ideal materializes. Perhaps then he'll want our sympathies. And Sally, did you really believe in the vision? But of course you did. The effect was powerful. You gave up everything to join us. I loved, I cried all aflame. Sometimes I believed, again doubted, but all the time I loved, and that leads anywhere, most often to hell. Sachs threw up his hands in protest. He was not a profane man, and Saunders suggested we retire. Our room was spacious, luxurious, divided into four by tall granite columns. The furniture was rich, but weighty in effect, and fantastically carved. The beds were long, narrow, and heavily padded. We sank deep in softness, inhaling a sleep-producing odor, sweet, sensuous. Drowsily, Sheldon uttered a gruesome joke, and Zax yawned his preference for the banks of his car. End of section 11